You're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Everyone is facing these huge life-changing moments. The people, places, and issues the Bay Area is talking about. I think it really is important for folks to reach out to people so they can know that they're not alone. We don't know how long all this is going to go on for. And from an emotional standpoint, psychologically, that's a really difficult, difficult thing to grapple with. This is KCBS In-Depth. As California hurdles towards the planned June 15th reopening, the end of the state's protracted lockdown could very well be less than two months away. That is, if there's enough vaccine doses and if hospital beds stay open. But as we've learned over the past year, during a pandemic, two months can be an awfully long time. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi, and today on the program, we're going to be thinking through the possible bumps in the road that may still get in the way of a complete reopening from the new variants of COVID-19 that are causing alarm among health experts. The more we allow this to sort of rage unchecked in large parts of the world, the more variants we're going to have introduced. To the continued inequities in the vaccine rollout that are preventing doses from reaching some of the people who need them most. We are trying to build an equitable COVID response on top of an inequitable healthcare infrastructure. First up, though, for some perspective on what the next two months might look like, we're going to welcome onto the program now frequent KCBS guest, UCSF professor of epidemiology, Dr. George Rutherford. Uh, Dr. Rutherford, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Keith. So starting off right now with the thousand foot view, this past week marks a real milestone in California's vaccination effort with the opening up of vaccine eligibility on Thursday to all adults aged 16 and up. But with that major step forward also came a reminder of how much uncertainty we are still facing. Uh, This week, of course, we also got the news that distribution of the one-shot Johnson & Johnson vaccine is going to be halted at least temporarily due to concerns about uh, an extremely rare blood clotting issue. So, Dr. Rutherford, taking this all together um, as we head into what could be the home stretch of this lockdown, how are you thinking about the current moment that we're in? Well, first of all, you have to celebrate them. Um, so uh, April 15th, which was thankfully not tax day this year, but it was a, a red letter, indeed a red letter day um, in epidemic control in California um, as we move to uh, uh, being able to vaccinate everybody who's eligible. I think there'll be another one uh, fairly soon when the FDA expands its emergency use authorization to the Pfizer vaccine for people down to the age of 12. That'll add some more to the pool that need to get vaccinated. I've seen uh, the data for San Francisco, and it looks like we're on track to have 85% of the population uh, of the eligible population, including adolescents, uh, vaccinated by uh, by early June in front of the uh, the governor's June 15th uh, next red letter day. So I think things are humming, as my father would say, they're going gangbusters. But the um, you know so that's the that's the great news. Yes, J and J is a ripple. That's a problem. Uh, and uh, it needs to be dealt with. The AstraZeneca vaccine seems like it's off the table uh, now, uh, but uh, we have plenty of Moderna and Pfizer, and um, the Merck was brought in to help with, uh, help with production and distribution. Uh, so those are all good things. So I think we're going to be in, in good shape. Now, the question is, is how long will it last? And, you know, you think about 
what uh, large populations are on our border. Well, let's say, okay, Wairika, uh, you know, state line, uh, Yuma. Uh, how about Tijuana and Mexicali, you know, with about two and a half million people uh, between them? You know, that's a big deal. And um, I, uh, people may not realize this, but the San Diego Tijuana and the San Diego Taimesa uh, border crossings are the most cross border, it's the third most cross borders in the world after uh, Hong Kong uh, and after Hong Kong, Shenzhen and, and China, Macau. So we have a huge population just south of us that comes back and forth with great regularity. Um, and having grown up in Southern California, I can assure you that it's essentially a continuous population from Ensenada to Santa Barbara with a small break from Cat Camp Pendleton. But it's a, you know, that's something that needs to be dealt with. Uh, and I hope that um, I know that President Biden has uh, given some vaccine doses to Mexico and we're contributing to the COVAX campaign. But I see that as kind of the next frontier. We can't congratulate, sit around and pat ourselves on the back and forget about where all the other population comes from in California. Right. No population is an island when you're dealing with a pandemic. And uh, hopefully we can talk a little bit more about the shape of the pandemic elsewhere in the states as well and what that could mean for California. Uh, real quick, I just want to give a quick snapshot of where we're at in terms of the rate of vaccination here in California. Uh, the other benchmark that we hit this past week is uh, now it looks like uh, more than 30 percent of California adults are fully vaccinated. And then we have another 20 percent or so that have gotten one shot but are still waiting for for the other shot. So you add those two together and we are more than 50% of adult Californians have at least started the process of vaccination. Uh, again, uh, we only have about two months to get the other 50%. So we're, uh, I mean, assuming we'll get everybody, which probably won't happen. So, you know, a lot of work to be done in the next two months, but from the sound of it, uh, you're feeling pretty confident about the progress that we'll be able to make. Yeah. Yeah. And, and don't forget, we have about probably nine, 10 million people with naturally acquired immunity as well. Mm. Um, now, there's going to be some Venn diagram overlap between the vaccinated and the naturally immune populations, but um, that gives us a little extra boost as well. All right. So uh, plenty to feel relatively conf confident about. Let's talk about the shape of the pandemic right now in California as compared to the rest of the country, because it is looking a little bit different here in California than elsewhere. Uh, we are seeing spikes in many regions throughout the country, including the Midwest, New England, uh, the New York area. Here in California, though, uh, for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, it seems like the numbers are not going up uh, as quickly. What do you think accounts for that difference in trajectory at the moment? It's it's actually pretty flat here. It may be up up a hair, like one percent or something, but it's pretty flat. Um, and um, it's uh, you know, I mean, I think there we have several things going for us. First of all, uh, we have this tier system, which I, I think appropriately manages risk with non pharmaceutical interventions and has kept transmission low during this period of time. I think we have a robust immunization system. Uh, I think we have a, a population that's largely uh, adherent to mask uh, and social distancing recommendations. And our, our, our ace in the hole is that we have these two California variants now called West Coast variants, the B1427 and the B1429 variants, which at least to my eyes seem to be out competing in a sort of evolutionary sense, uh, the UK variant, the B117 variant, which is what's causing all the problems in New England and um, and and uh, the upper Midwest. Now, that's a bit of an interesting 
observation. Uh, speaking once again, by the way, to UCSF professor of epidemiology, Dr. George Rutherford, this is KCBS In-Depth. That's a, an interesting observation saying that we should count ourselves lucky to have a new variant uh, of the coronavirus here in California. Typically, uh, or, or at least uh, most of the coverage that the new variants have received, uh, these are you know concerning developments, but potential uh, faster spreaders, potentially uh, more deadly. But uh, I guess the, the point that uh, you're making is that this California variant, which is not as bad as those other variants, is crowding them out, not allowing them to get a foothold here? Yeah, I mean, it's just right out of Darwin 101, is this could be the finches in the Galapagos, right? But it's, mm. you know, but it's, it's that's what seems to be happening. Now, it may not hold. Um, this is the, the the West Coast variants are a little bit more transmissible, maybe 20% more transmissible, but they don't be seem to be associated um, with more severe disease. The British think that the UK variant is associated with more severe disease. Um, I think it's kind of a mixed, uh, the literature's a bit mixed on it. Uh, but yeah, I think this gives us a, uh, a leg up and gives us an evolutionary advantage. And the other place where these variants are spreading is Arizona, which is also keeping the lid on things. Um, so yeah, I mean, we have, we have, you know, so you got that going for you, right? Yeah. Uh, n- never thought that uh, we would count such a thing as a blessing. Um, I want to remind listeners that we are speaking to UCSF professor of epidemiology, Dr. George Rutherford, about the path ahead as California approaches what could be the end of the lockdown. Um, So we've been talking so far about the potential for the various kinds of variants to cause problems here in California. Uh, I guess I'll just uh, dealer's choice. Uh, Are there any other major potential bumps in the road that keep an epidemiologist up at night as uh, he thinks through the possibilities of the remaining months of this pandemic? First of all, we never sleep, so there's no keeping us. <laughs> well, that's convenient. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, the things that I worry about are the emergence of new variants. Um, and the more we allow these uh, allow this to sort of rage unchecked in large parts of the world, the more, the more variants we're going to have introduced. Um, and, you know, in ground zero, besides, uh, besides the U.S. and Brazil and Argentina and Peru, uh, right now is really Europe. And if people are, you know, you know, planning their European vacations, I'd push towards the end of the summer. Uh, hopefully things will get under control by then. But they're well behind us or two months behind us in vaccination. Um, so that's going to be a, a problem. So we have the re- reintroduction of, of variants. We have... Um, a loss of public trust and in, in confidence in the vaccines, which is why the Johnson & Johnson thing was so troubling uh, earlier this week. Now, we don't see any drop-off in people showing up to get Moderna and Pfizer, uh, nor should there be, but that's that's great. Um, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that um, that uh, I really worry about. And so we'll just have to, have to see how it plays out. Um, oh, and then potentially supplies. So, for instance, if Governor Whitmer has, of Michigan has a request uh, granted and we divert a large amount of vaccines to Michigan and Minnesota and the upper Midwest where there are big ongoing outbreaks and it strips away our supply, then we, you know, then we could have slowing of vaccination programs and all the timetables get, get rearranged. But we'll see how that plays. Um, so I guess in closing, maybe you could just talk us through the potential timeline that we should expect when uh, when are schools going to go back to normal when are major sporting events gonna go back to normal or or is normal should we just forget that word normal for a little bit and kind of expect things to be catch as you can for the foreseeable future there's gonna have to be a little bit of catch as catch can for the immediate future I fully expect schools to be completely back up and running and normally by um, in the fall 
whether we can mm. pull it off for summer, uh, for summer semesters, summer quarters, um, I think is remains to be seen. Um, I think sporting events are, are starting to come back up now with uh, with uh, sort of smaller crowds. The Warriors' first home game is uh, with with a crowd is April twenty third. Um, they have elaborate precautions in place, uh, including testing of people who have not been vaccinated. Um, the Giants and A's are following major league rules. The Giants also are, are required by the city to have people show proof of vaccination or or, or have a ne- have had a recent negative test. So I think they're, you know, I mean, th- that's not normal, but it's going to, it's good. It's going to get us there gradually. You're going to have to get used, keep wearing your masks. Don't throw them all away. I don't know if you know this story, but on, on uh, November 21st, 1918 in San Francisco, there was a, during the middle of the 1918 flu, there was a mask ordinance and the, it expired at noon that day. And all the sirens and the church bell clanged in the city and the church bells rang and on and everybody threw their masks away. Uh, the Chronicle talked about the Market Street being covered in gauze from people throwing their masks away. And five months later, there were 1,800 more deaths. So don't be so quick to throw your masks away. There are We have lessons from history that uh, tell us to be cautious. Yeah, important lessons from history indeed. All right, well, uh, hopefully taking that all to heart, uh, we are going to round things out now. We have been speaking to UCSF Professor of Epidemiology, Dr. George Rutherford. Dr. Rutherford, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, my pleasure, anytime. This is KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Manconi. Today on the program, California is now well on its way toward a complete reopening, taking the major step this past week of expanding vaccine eligibility to all residents aged 16 and up. But with half the adult population still left unvaccinated, there is a lot of work left to be done. And up next, we're going to consider one of the major challenges that's dogged the state throughout the duration of the vaccine rollout, the question of equity. Despite efforts to bring the vaccine into hard-hit communities, many are still lagging behind. In fact, when it comes to equity in the vaccine distribution, a CDC report from about a month back ranked California's vaccine rollout among the bottom five for any state in the country. So we're going to get some perspective now on what barriers have made this all so difficult and what progress is being made. For that, we'll be hearing next from Kieran Savage-Songwan, the executive director of the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network. It's a statewide advocacy group. Here's that conversation. Kieran Savage-Songwan, welcome to KCBS In-Depth. Thank you. Happy to be here. So let's talk first about why these disparities exist, because uh, it's not like California has not been talking the talk. Uh, Governor Newsom and others in state leadership in recent weeks have reportedly referred to equity as the North Star of response efforts. So at least rhetorically, setting a very high standard for the equity that they want to see in the vaccine rollout. And uh, yet some of the hardest hit communities, namely Latinos and African-Americans, are still getting vaccinated at much, much lower rates than you would expect, given their share of the population. So where, in your view, is this disconnect coming from? So thanks for that question, Keith. And first, I would say that um, what we know about the pandemic and the response to pandemic is that it is building upon very unequal access to health care and very different health outcomes for different racial populations. California. So we are trying to build an equitable COVID response on top of an inequitable healthcare infrastructure. So we know we're going to see disparities. 
And some of what we know has existed for a long time um, is that people of color are least likely to have access to a usual or regular source of healthcare, right? So I have Kaiser, I have my personal doctor at Kaiser that I go to, but people of color are least likely to have something like that. And so they don't necessarily have a provider who's reaching out to them to tell them about the vaccine. They don't necessarily have a place that they go on a regular basis for healthcare. And all of that is because we have these real barriers to access that have existed for a long time. What we're trying to do with COVID and with the vaccine rollout is to fix some of that, right? And to make sure that we really are responsive to the fact that people of color um, were most likely to get COVID, uh, continue to be most likely to get COVID, and most likely to experience serious symptoms and even death um, from the virus. And so we know that those communities, particularly low-income communities of color, um, need to be a priority to get vaccinated because they are at an increased risk right now um, for serious COVID cases. So the state has done a number of things to try to sort of level this out and really concentrate our efforts in those communities. Um, I think the biggest one is the state made the decision a couple months ago to prioritize certain zip codes that have basically a high level of vulnerability based on a number of different factors, right? Based on poverty levels, based on housing conditions, um, all of that um, uh, sort of put together determines which zip codes the state prioritized. And um, the state basically doubled the share of vaccine that's going into those zip codes and being distributed in those zip codes, right? Um, really concentrated our efforts there. Um, so that's been really important in terms of supply and distribution. The other thing that the state has done is really concentrate on outreach, um, culturally specific messaging, using trusted community messengers such as faith leaders and others to talk to folks about the vaccine, about why it's important and about where to get it. Um, so I think all of that has been really important. It's not something that we're seeing in a lot of other states. California is really, I think, leading the pack on the strategies that we have used to respond and the strategies that we have used to roll out the vaccine. That said, when we look at the data, we do continue to see inequities um, and particularly by race. And so what we see is that particularly black and Latino um, Californians are being vaccinated at a rate that's about half of their share um, according to their share of the state population, right? So significantly under vaccinated. Um, and so that's something that we need to pay particular attention to. We have seen significant improvement in terms of the number of people being vaccinated in those zip codes that we're targeting, right? So we've seen um, incredible improvement there, but we do still have a gap. And so we really think that the state needs to double down on these equity strategies, continue really concentrating the supply and the distribution of vaccines in these communities, continue to resource our federally qualified health centers, community clinics, to be some of the primary facilities distributing the vaccine and really ramp up our outreach and messaging as supply ramps up in the state of California to make sure that people know where to get vaccinated, to make sure that people know that it is free, even if you don't have insurance, um, and to make sure that people know why it's important. Speaking once again to Kieran Savage-Sangwan, the executive director of the statewide advocacy group, the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network. This is KCBS In-Depth. And uh, picking up on some of those challenges, uh, some of the other challenges that I've been hearing from community groups that are trying to reach folks in underserved communities uh, are the issues of reliable Internet, the issues of transportation. How do you get to that vaccine center once it's there? And uh, the uh, issue of work stability. Some folks uh, have an easier time taking time off work. Some folks have a harder time 
I'm taking time off work and all these factors, uh, you know, no matter what resources are available, if those uh, individual factors are not addressed, it, it, it really kind of blunts whatever outreach effort you're trying to put forward. Yes, that's true. And so there's a lot of effort right now to expand the hours for the vaccine distribution sites and particularly the community clinics, I think, are doing a really good job of having extended evening and weekend hours, which is going to be really important for people who work long hours, don't have flexibility to take time off work. Also working to make sure that our vaccine distribution sites are accessible both to people with disabilities and to people who have limited English proficiency, making sure that everyone really can get into that site, can understand what's going on and can get their vaccine. Um, and addressing the transportation barriers. So some of the um, vaccine distribution is being done uh, through mobile clinics um, that are going into neighborhoods, being more readily available to folks. And the state is working, um, from my understanding, to bring on board an additional um, contractor to be able to provide assistance with transportation for folks who need it um, to get their vaccine. The digital divide, I think, is a really significant issue because folks are being encouraged to use the MyTurn system, which is an online appointment scheduling system. Um, but that said, most counties and many of the providers also do have phone scheduling systems, and the state has been investing in community-based organizations so that they can assist people in registering, right? So they can assist so that their constituents, their community members, both in reaching out to them to talk about the vaccine and in making sure that they get set up for that appointment. What about the role of vaccine hesitancy? There have been a number of reports suggesting that in many communities, including uh, minority communities, there have been a lot of misinformation about uh, the dangers of these vaccines, the possible side effects. Uh, many of these, you know, uh, obviously a, a lot of that information is not entirely accurate. Um, but a lot of that hesit hesitancy and a lot of that concern is based on uh, real history of uh, trauma with the uh, American medical system that many uh, minority populations have experienced over the years. So what are you hearing in terms of the hesitancy that's out there and what role it's playing in uh, hampering this distribution effort? Yeah, it's a great question. It certainly is a concern. Um, but what I will say is we are finding that access is more of a barrier than hesitancy. And while there is some level of um, uh, questions about the vaccine, that primarily in communities of color, when we answer those questions, when we take the time to provide people with the information and have the conversation, people are ready and willing to get vaccinated. And, and right now we're not having an issue where, um, you know, the appointments aren't getting filled, right? We are, we are distributing all of the vaccine that we have, right? Um, and so I think it's important just to know that really our barrier is more of the access issues right now. Um, and that there really is an opportunity to educate folks and to share the information um, about the vaccine with them. And that we have found that to be really successful in communities of color in terms of people getting vaccinated. And I would also add, I think it is important that we take the time to answer people's questions because you know everyone should feel comfortable and confident getting this vaccine. We want people to have the information. We want people to be able to make that informed decision. And we believe that when people have that information, they sign up and go get their vaccine. Yeah. Now, what does it mean when June 15th rolls around and the state more or less opens up to pre-pandemic levels of opening up and these disparities still exist and many of these communities that have been exposed to a great deal of risk over the last year are still not as protected as we would like to see? Um, that's, a, that's a concern that's been raised by a number of groups. I'm wondering how that weighs on your mind and, and what that scenario looks like. 
Right. So I think that we are really optimistic about the June 15th date because I would also remind folks that it's communities of color that have been hardest hit by the economic impacts of the pandemic, right? So I think we are all invested in working together and getting to this reopening that's so important for all of our communities. Um, you may remember earlier in the pandemic, as counties started to reopen one by one last year, the state instituted what they called a health equity metric. And basically what that meant is that every time we looked at the progress a county was making, we looked at that um, information specifically in our lowest income zip codes and compared it to the county as a whole. And that if there was a significant difference, right? So if there was significantly more spread of the virus in low income communities, the county was not able to move forward with reopening until they addressed that, until they put resources there and brought those levels down as well. Um, because we knew we didn't want to leave anyone behind, um, both from an ethics perspective and also from a public health perspective. And so we are really encouraging the state to institute a consideration around equity like that, looking at making sure that we have done um, enough vaccination in those zip codes, in those communities, that they have the level of community immunity that's going to be necessary to keep people safe and protect vulnerable communities. Well, in closing, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Uh, you referred earlier to the existing health inequities in the the, the uh, medical system that impacted people of color before the pandemic began and how the pandemic has really thrown those disparities into stark relief. I'm wondering if your sense is that coming out of this, we are going to learn some lessons and perhaps reshape some of our health responses unrelated to the pandemic. Uh, is that the uh, trajectory that you feel we're on right now? Yes, I think that it is. And I think um, we also have about $26 billion coming to the state and another nearly $20 billion going to cities and counties from the federal government and COVID relief funds. And we very much believe that that significant amount of money needs to be used as a down payment on health equity to fix some of these disparities that we've seen for generations. So is it just a matter of more investment or are there real lessons in terms of doing things smarter, doing things more in line with what communities need? So what we have learned is that we have really significant underlying inequities in our healthcare system. Um, people of color have less access to healthcare and experience discrimination within healthcare settings, ultimately leading to poor health outcomes, more chronic conditions, and shorter life expectancies. In order to really make progress on that and to advance health equity in the state of California, we need to invest in healthcare that is close to the community, that's integrated in our communities. We need to build a more diverse healthcare provider workforce. Um, and we need to make sure that healthcare is integrated so that we are addressing not only people's physical healthcare, but also their mental health care, making sure that people have access to dental care and making sure that people get preventative health care. All right. Well, a vision for healthcare in California, even after this pandemic is over. We have been speaking there to Kieran Savage-Sangwan, the executive director for the statewide advocacy group, the California Pan-Ethnic Health Network. Uh, Kieran Savage-Sangwan, thanks so much. Thank you. This has been KCBS In-Depth. Remember, you can find past editions of the program online at the KCBS website or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. For KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll see you next week. 
You've been listening to KCBS In-Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS.